You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Throughout history, there have been many notable moments that have taken place, books written about such events, most of which happening even before our lifetime. The signing of the Magna Carta, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, uh, the invention of the World Wide Web a.k.a. the internet, the day you were born. As your mother perhaps told you, the world would never be the same. Nevertheless, whether these events are globally known and celebrated or known only to a few, they are nevertheless significant. Significant for any number of reasons as to what they've accomplished in an individual's life, in a country's history, around the world as a catalyst, as a point of reformation and change and transition. But all of those events would be nothing and by comparison are nothing in contrast to the event we're going to take a look at this morning. Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, we return after having a bit of a hiatus from Matthew to come back to these final two chapters. I say final because it has been our practice as a church to work through the book of Matthew. We've been doing so actually for a couple of years together. For those of you who are just joining us, but perhaps are interested to hear and learn more of some of the previous chapters, anything from the Sermon on the Mount to a number of other teachings, Jesus is teaching on forgiveness or church discipline or other number of things, those are all available to you on the web. But for our purposes this morning, we come to the text, Matthew 27, verse 27, through the end of the chapter. Now, to be clear, this morning, due to the size of the material and due to the brief amount of time we have, this will just be the first installment, the second of which will come next week. It's like sitting down before a good spread of food at perhaps your grandmother's house, your abuela's house, or perhaps your aunt's place, or perhaps a mother's place, and having so many dishes, you're like, you know what? My plate cannot have all, cannot fit all of those dishes on here, so I've got to come back for seconds. That's what's happening here in the text. There's so much going on here in the text that no single sermon could capture everything. In fact, to be quite honest, and to set your expectations accordingly, several sermons from yours truly will not even capture everything in the text. But at least it'll put some of the food that God has given in Matthew 27 on your plate this morning that you can enjoy, you can digest, you can be strengthened by. We come to this this morning in Matthew 27. I'm indebted to D.A. Carson in his work titled Scandalous, even as he makes these observations himself with my commentary to follow as we see in the text what's going on. Now, for those of you who have not been familiar with where we have been, we're not a, pre- a part of previous Sundays when we're in the book of Matthew, we are right up to 
Ground Zero. As I've titled this work this morning, The Hinge of History, the event that history turns on, it is the event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who indeed is and was the Christ and continues to be the anointed one of God, chosen, born of a virgin, living like us in every respect, tempted like us in every respect, yet without sin. He is the least person qualified for the event that's about to take place. And yet he does so, as we have sung already this morning several times, he does so as a substitute. He does so in place of people like you and people like me. So this morning, for our purposes, briefly, let me show you the four ironies of the cross. The four ironies of the cross. The first irony I want you to see is the man who was mocked as king is the king. Look with me, Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, again, just to make sure we're on the same page here, we have already gone through in the previous verses a mockery of an illegitimate trial. Regardless of what you think of previous trials in our country as the legitimacy of the court renderings, friends, it's undeniable to anybody who has a logical, reasonable brain that what we see 2,000 years ago in first the religious trial and then the political trial of Jesus Nazareth was, was not a trial at all. Had in the dark of night before any witnesses except the witnesses that kept lying about the testimony, that their own testimony kept contradicting each other. They finally get an accusation to stick and then they bring it to the political leaders. Pontius Pilate, he clearly sees himself, this guy's done nothing wrong. But he knows he's up against a bit of a, bit of a difficult moment here because if he does nothing with it and the man's accused of calling himself to be a king, that could make its way back to Rome and he could be, be guilty of not dealing with political insurrection. Emperor won't take that too kindly. Ah, what does he do? We see in another text in the Gospels, he's like, you know what? I'll build a friendship with Herod. We can collaborate our friendship a little bit better. It's been broken, if you will. I'll send it over to Herod. Herod, you make the decision. Let you take the credit on this one. Herod basically deals with it very briefly and says, I'm not touching this one. This man, Jesus, isn't guilty of anything. Sends it back to Pilate. Pilate, meanwhile, has a conversation with Jesus least tries to. He's surprised that Jesus, except for a few times, won't even respond back to these accusations. His own wife sends a servant, interrupts the trial, something you do not do, and says, I had a vision while I was sleeping, a dream while sleeping. This man is innocent. Do not in any way sentence him. 
So his final last-ditch effort, Pilate says, you know what? Let's put it to the popularity vote. It's never a good decision. Just ask Moses how well that goes. The crowd that just one week earlier was yelling, Hosanna, praise be to God, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, is now yelling, crucify him. He says, what about Barabbas? You want me to let him free or let Jesus free? Barabbas, who is guilty of political instruction and a convicted felon, the crowd says, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And now here we are. In this moment, soldiers, after having beaten him, as we saw this earlier in verse 26, Released them to, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And now, as I've said here, Jesus is mocked as being a king. And yet, here's the deal. He actually is. He actually is. He is the one by which the scriptures prophesied would come as the son of David, who David would prophesy, the Lord said to my Lord, referring to Jesus himself. Jesus actually is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, all of creation, as we heard a couple of months back from Trevor's sermon in Colossians chapter one, all of creation exists because of Jesus, continues to exist because of Jesus, and is moving forward for the glory of Jesus. And yet these soldiers mock him, spit on him. It says here that they stripped him of his clothes, put a scarlet robe on him, and it talks about how they took these thorns, these basically like nail-like length-type thorns from these bushes in this area and wrapped it and then basically impaled his head with it, striking him on the head. If any of you have ever had a cut on your head, you know how vascular your head is, how much it will bleed blood just coming down over everywhere kneeling before him and mocking him. And yet, notice for all of the conversation taking place in the text, notice who does not speak. Jesus. He does not say a word. No record of any response like a lamb led to a slaughter is silent. It's irony. Second irony is that the man who is utterly powerless is powerful. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. Look at now verse 32 through verse 40. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Verse 40, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So we've changed the scene. We've gone from the courtroom, from the courtyard rather, where Jesus has been stripped and mocked and beaten by the soldiers, now taken to the cross. We're introduced to this man named Simon, who was asked by request, by requirement, he has to carry the cross of Christ. Then Jesus is brought to this place. It would have been outside of the city limits where Jesus would have been crucified. And the place in which he would have been crucified was significant because of what it was saying, what it was intending to communicate. Now, the way his crucifixion, as any crucifixion would take place, so that you know, and we'll speak more of this next week in more detail, but the crucifixion, contrary to sometimes popular opinion, was not a nail pushed through the palm of each hand. Why do I say that? Because the body of the person's weight through their hands and through their feet would be hanging there. And to have a nail pierced through the center of the hand would rip out through the parts of metacarpal bones of the hand. It would rip out. So it was actually at the part of what we referred to as the wrist, which at that time was considered part of the hand. It was been pierced through there. So there he is hanging with his arms pinned, literally nailed with like a railroad-like spike through his wrist on that piece of wood and his feet crushed through and there he is hanging. And he's joined by robbers, one on his left and one of his right. And now the choir begins. Not a choir of praise, a choir of mockery. They mock him. In fact, the location of the crucifixion was significant because its location outside of the city would be a statement by the Roman government to any rebels, any massive act of treasonous traitors, this is the consequence. Go up against us, this is what happens. And as people would go by, they would mock, as it says there in verse 40, what it was that they said and how they mocked him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. Here's the thing. If there ever was a petition made of Jesus, this is one we do not want him to answer. If there ever was a prayer made of Jesus, there ever was a request made of him, this is one we want him to not listen to. Because if he comes down, deal's off. There's no substitute. No perfect savior for a sinless people. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful ruling the nations. It's ironic, this very God who is hanging there, being crucified, is the very God responsible for the lives of the people, for the very fact that their bodies are working, their very voices are communicating, mocking him, could not do so 
if it was not for his divine power to sustain such ability. They have no clue about his power, which takes us to the third irony of the cross. The man who cannot save himself saves others. The man who apparently can't save himself saves others. Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. So now we just, it's just an ongoing conversation here of mockery saying in verse 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Friends, this could be the furthest thing from the truth. Why? Because what they're referring to is throughout Jesus' earthly ministry for three years, he did what nobody denied. He didn't just speak with authority, as it says the very name of Matthew chapter 7. He was not like the scribes. He spoke as one with authority. He was not like anything they had ever seen before. Why? Because not only is his teaching, it was also his miracles. The man literally walked on water, exercised demons, healed the sick, raised the dead. In fact, the religious leaders at that time were so shocked and so undone, they finally just said, we can't deny it. It's got to be by the power of Satan he's doing this. And then he's like, Jesus is like, wait a minute, think about that with me for a second. By the power of Satan, Satan's casting out demons? That's a divided house. That doesn't make any sense. They would just come up with any possible explanation and interpretation to support their rejection of his lordship. That's no different than today. Perhaps there's some of you in this room right now sitting here today who are coming up with any possible reason to reject this teaching in Matthew 27 of why, therefore, you will not submit your life to Christ. You might not mock him like this. You might be a little bit more polite about it. You might not wish him any physical harm, but you mean to accomplish the same principal point, which is simply rejection. No matter what proof God gives. They said here, if you would come off the cross, then we would believe in you. They kept giving condition after condition after condition by which they would believe, which was just simply a form of unbelief. Proud, rebellious unbelief. In our home, raising our children, uh, we would teach our children, as I trust you were taught as a child, or some of the children here being taught, okay, child, you need to understand something. We had three sons. I trust this is true with the daughters as well. Let them know, maybe you have a soft spot in your heart for daughters, but I had three sons, so you know, this is how it goes. Okay, to be very clear, you are not to disobey and you're not to disrespect. And especially as the father of the house, when I'm gone, I do not want to learn from you that in any form or fashion, you have disobeyed your mother, you've disrespected your mother. That will come with consequences. But oftentimes children will find a way to disobey by delaying their obedience. We all know this, right? Take the trash out today. It's like 11.59 p.m. It's today. Get off my back, mom. Come on. Come on. Wash the dishes. I will. You didn't say when. Okay, I'm sorry. In this lifetime? These passive-aggressive forms of conditional, delayed obedience. We can laugh about it in this sort of childlike setting, but the reality is here, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, kept 
delaying their faith, putting one condition upon another, upon another, upon God, that until God met that, then they would not believe. Until then, they would not believe. Friends, do not make that same mistake. Fourth irony of the cross. The man who cries out in despair, trust God. Look at verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. Referring to Jesus. They were clear what he was saying. Verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And yielded up his spirit, meaning he died. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. What you have here in these verses is the fulfillment and the continuation of what Jesus was praying earlier during the prayer in John 17, what was referred to earlier in chapter 26, thinking about his prayer, his time of praying in Gethsemane, where he says in chapter 26, verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Why does he say that? Because he earlier said in verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here is Jesus, both in his prayer and then later in his crucifixion, acknowledging audibly what he is experiencing personally, physically, and relationally. Not just the pain of the crucifixion, not just the wrath of God being poured out upon him that otherwise we deserve, but also the relationship that he prays to the Father. Perfect relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God the Father hears a prayer from God the Son and he does not respond. 
Jesus cries out in despair, trusting the Father. I say this to you this morning to say, this is the extent that Jesus goes to, to not only do the will of the Father, but to offer salvation to sinners. The question is whether or not you think that applies to you. I'm reminded of a text that I preached on recently in South Carolina. Luke chapter 5, after Jesus has called Matthew to follow him, and he's done so. And he throws a party, Matthew throws a party for Jesus to come and attend with all of his tax collector friends. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gives this answer. Listen to me as I read this to you. Jesus said to them what I'm saying to you today here this morning in Miami. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is only until you and I realize we are sinners who need a savior that the message of the cross becomes clear and we respond by repentance and faith. But until you and I do that, they were simply in the company of the scribes and the Pharisees, religiously educated, empirically smart, but spiritually hard-hearted. For those of you whose faith is in Christ, let me just encourage you this morning to be reminded in the midst of everything you experience, circumstantially, where you are challenged to believe whether or not God loves you, go back again and again and again to Matthew 27 and hear your Savior cry to your Father and hear your Father say nothing in response to him so that your heavenly father could respond to you and show you that he loves you, he cares about you, and he will never leave you nor forsaken you as he has done his son in place of you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.